Good morning, Fisherville. If you would turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. Praise God, we don't have to pray about what we're preaching today. For 11 years and one month, we've preached through books of the Bible, and we're going to finish that way. And God's going to raise up someone here at Fisherville who'll do the same thing. Or I'm coming back on a warpath. It's the only way to preach in my estimation. His eye is on the sparrow and he watches over Fisherville. And he watches over every individual, every Christian at Fisherville. And our fretting and our discouragements and our despair are evidences that we're the man of Mark 9, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help our unbelief, Lord, today as we preach this final text. I don't have contacts on. I began my ministry 11 years and one month ago this week without glasses. And today I forgot mine. <laughs> So maybe the Lord just wanted to remind you of what I once looked when I was a younger man. If you would look with me in Ephesians 6, we'll start in verse 14. The Apostle Paul writes, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Let's pray. Father, we pray that in your providence as we come to this final passage, Ephesians 6, on the armor of God, you would equip my Fisherville family to stand firm in this armor, in this new season. We pray that you would use this passage to do just that, that you would use even a weak preacher to bring about this vital means of grace, the word of God, to bear on your people at Fisherville. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. There's a stirring video that you can look at on, on YouTube that shows how an eagle fights a snake. Um, and I think this video really is insightful in how we should engage in, in spiritual warfare. The eagle does not fight the snake on its home turf, that is the ground. 
it picks it up and takes it to the sky and it changes the battleground. And then it releases the snake in the air. Now on the ground, the snake has dominion. That's his domain. But in the air, it has no stamina. It has no power. It has no leverage. It's useless. It's weak. And it's vulnerable. Unlike on the ground where it is powerful, it is cunning, and it is deadly. In other words, change the battleground like the eagle is what the video is admonishing us to do. Change the battleground and let God take charge. Or in Paul's theology, put off the old self. You can't improve the old self. That's, the, that's that part of that unredeemed self that every Christian still has that cannot be improved. Put it off every day. It causes destruction in your personal lives. It causes destruction in your relationships. Be made new in the attitude of your mind and put on the new self, which is our corporate identity and union in Jesus Christ. That's how he described it in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 6, he describes it with another metaphor. Put on the armor of God. Now, the last two weeks, we've been looking at spiritual warfare. We've seen our adequacy, every Christian's adequacy in the warfare. That's why he would begin this, in, uh, this section of Scripture, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We have adequacy in the wealth of the, the warfare. But we've also seen our, our enemy in this warfare, and that is the evil one, the adversary, as Scripture describes him. He has been defeated by the cross. His head was crushed at the cross in principle, and yet, he has been permitted in the mysterious providences of God to continue to exercise tragic sway because he knows his time is short. And so, we were introduced to the armor last week to fight this battle. And we saw the first bit of armor was this belt of truth, which is another way of saying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see that confirmed in the second part of verse 14 as we come to the second piece of armor. He says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. Now, Isaiah promised a savior. In Isaiah 59, who would put on righteousness as his breastplate. So certainly the Apostle Paul is sitting in that prison, and he likely has Isaiah memorized. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was on the Sanhedrin. And so he likely had the entire, what we know as the Old Testament, memorized. So whether they allowed him scripture or not, he had it memorized. And he's meditating on Isaiah 59 that speaks of the one who would come, the Savior, who would put on righteousness as his breastplate. 
Interestingly, that makes sense of this verb, put on, put on the breastplate of righteousness. That verb, put on, is the verb we saw in Ephesians 4.24 when it says, put on the new self. It's the verb we see in Galatians 3.27 where we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 13.14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So the breastplate protected the soldier's vital organs. So the breastplate was what protected all of those vital organs and it serves metaphorically in the same way in spiritual warfare. It covers one of the main areas the devil attacks, if not the central area. That is our hearts, the causal core of our being. In Proverbs 4, the, the writer there, Solomon likely, says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. And so if the devil attacks the core of our being, he can devastate us. If he can reach our hearts with guilt and fear and anxiety and despair and discouragement and disillusionment and bitterness, he knows he has won. And so Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now here's the question. What is this righteousness that Paul is referring to here? Well, foundational. And the one who, who really um, made this clear for the first time since the dark ages began was Luther. We sang his song this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And Luther understood, he came to understand what we have all come to understand as Protestants. That if we're going to stand before a, a God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his righteousness, we have to stand before him in a perfect righteousness. And none of us have a perfect righteousness. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. And so foundational to this righteousness is what the reformers called imputed righteousness. It's the righteousness that Jesus Christ secured in his obedience to the law. That's why he had to come as a man and live 33 years. He fulfilled all righteousness so that we who are unrighteous might be righteous in the sight of God. And so for those of us who trust in Jesus, that perfect righteousness is imputed to us. It's, it's credited to us so that when God sees us, he doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see our unrighteousness. He sees the perfect righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so fundamental to this in the warfare, God's love displayed in this perfect righteousness in the Son of God is how we overcome these, these attacks from the evil one. And fundamentally, those attacks which center on temptation and accusation. It's the primary way he works, temptation and accusation. And so when I am tempted, the general tendency for me, if I don't have on the breastplate of righteousness, is to question the love of God, to question the goodness of God. I am tempted because I am believing at that moment God is holding out on me. 
The breastplate of righteousness tells me he has not held on to me. He is all in. He is completely invested in me. And when the devil accuses me that I am worthless, that I, that I don't deserve the blessings that I have, I am questioning again the goodness of God. I am questioning the love of God in that particular case. And this breastplate of righteousness tells me that the Son of God would humble himself to the point of death so that I might have my sins forgiven, that I might be justified. And that helps me overcome the evil one's attack. But this righteousness is more than imputed righteousness. You know, Romans 6:17, the Apostle Paul says that when we obey the gospel call by repentance and faith, we are both declared righteous, that's imputed righteousness, and then we become a slave of righteousness at the same time. What does that mean, slave of righteousness? When God imputes the righteousness of Christ to me, the Spirit begins to work righteousness in me. That's my inherent infused righteousness, my sanctification. You see, the Lord wants His righteousness to master us. He doesn't want us to use it just as a security blanket from hell. Jesus is no security blanket. He wants to master us. And this is the process after we are saved where we joyfully, by the Spirit of Christ, surrender ourselves to God's imputed righteousness and then do whatever His righteousness directs us to do by His Word. You see, if we play with sin... And we can play with sin with, with sinister ways like pornography or, or lesser sinister, but even perhaps as destructive ways, gossip and slander. When we play with sin, we have taken off the breastplate. This breastplate is righteousness. And so we are to stand having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. But if we're to stand, Paul says we need proper footwear. And that brings us to verse 15. And he says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now again, I think Paul is meditating on Isaiah. In Isaiah 52, verse 17 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Of course, centrally, that is the Messiah. It's known that soldiers and Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great won battles partly because of their military shoes that prepared them for battle and allowed them to cover long distances in a short time and in so doing catch the enemy off guard. And we must have the proper footwear for battling this evil one. And he says here, this is the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So what is Paul talking about here? Is this peace in the gospel or is this the peace of the gospel? 
which we experience. In other words, peace in the gospel, which we proclaim, and peace of the gospel, which we experience. Well, I think it's both. We proclaim what we experience. We always proclaim what we experience. And so we experience this gospel of peace through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And that's our greatest need in spiritual warfare is peace, right? And then we take it and we publish it to others. So how does that help us in spiritual warfare? How does publishing, proclaiming the gospel of peace help us in warfare? Well, it advances on enemy territory. It transforms the tools of the evil one into friends of the gospel. And so as Fisherville uh, perseveres uh, and stands in the day of evil, and the days are evil, we are to put on the readiness that comes with these gospel shoes of peace. That brings us to verse 16. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts. The, the enemy is always throwing darts. He calls them flaming darts of the evil one. Now, the, the shield for the Roman soldier was four feet by two feet. It was made of wood, and it was covered with leather so that when the enemy shot those flaming arrows, it would extinguish those flaming arrows, flaming darts. So how does the shield of faith help us when the enemy is shooting darts at us? And all of us have experienced that. Most of us experience it in some way every day. Well, first of all, it's our faith that helps us recognize satanic schemes. It's our faith. William Gurnall, who wrote a remarkable work, a Puritan who wrote a remarkable work on, on spiritual warfare, says, faith has a piercing eye. It looks behind the curtain of sense and sees sin before it be dressed up for the stage. You get that language? It sees sin before it is dressed up for the stage. Sin goes on stage and it's costumed and it's beautiful and it looks alluring. But the, the shield of faith sees that sin before it's even dressed up for the stage. A second way that faith helps us when the flaming darts are coming at us Faith puts Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, between Satan and his demons and us. That's what faith does. Ian Bounds says this, No battle was ever planned by hell's most gifted strategist, which can conquer faith. That's a good word. All its inflamed and terrible darts fall harmless as they strike against the shield of faith. Of course, this isn't faith in faith. That's where our culture is, just as long as you believe something. It doesn't matter if it's true. They don't even believe in objective truth. That's why we have these sinister philosophies that are taking hold in our culture, like critical race theory. This is faith in an object. It is faith in the sufficiency and the reality in what Jesus Christ 
has done for us by his gospel. Again, you never get past the gospel. You know what the gospel teaches us is the wisdom of God. That God could devise a plan to judge our sin, which we deserve, and save us the sinner at the same time through a substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the gospel teaches us the goodness of God, that he is so good that he would save people like us. It teaches us the love of God, that he is all invested in us. When we do not take up the shield of faith, we become vulnerable. We become vulnerable to unholy thoughts, temptations, fear, and doubt, and anxiety, and despair, and discouragement, and distrust, discontentment, and worry. All of these things are darts from the evil one meant to consume us and deceive us. It's the shield of faith. This brings us to the, the helmet. And he says, and take the helmet of salvation. The principal battlegrounds for the the, the evil one is the heart and the mind, and hence the need for the helmet of salvation. Again, Isaiah. The Apostle Paul loved Isaiah. We need to love Isaiah. Isaiah promised a Savior who would wear the helmet of salvation on his head. Isaiah 59, verse 17. Paul calls this helmet in 1 Thessalonians 5 the hope of salvation. So he defines it for us in 1 Thessalonians 5. It is the hope of salvation. In other words, a helmet is the assurance of our salvation. There's nothing the evil one can do to alter or undermine the fact that we are saved, but he can certainly take away our assurance. He can attack our assurance. Our standing, our salvation, our status doesn't fluctuate with the success are the failures in spiritual warfare. But the enemy is determined to convince us that it does. And then you're mincemate. And that is why we must put on the helmet. A helmet ref reflecting the mind, a mind preoccupied with the thoughts of our great Savior and his great accomplishment. The cross again tells you that he is fully invested in you. If you question the love of God, the goodness of God, you need to look to the cross. Jesus Christ humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And my questioning the goodness of God reflects gospel amnesia. And when I have gospel amnesia, let me just say this better. When we have gospel amnesia, we live with an orphan mentality. And we aren't orphans in Christ. We are adopted sons and daughters of God. A father who has adopted us in his son who is completely invested in us. And, and it's questioning these things that make us vulnerable to the evil one. In fact, even when we question at the corporate level. But to foster this hope, we must be people of the word. And he says... He says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. And just if you wonder what he means here, he tells us, which is the word of God. 
again in Isaiah 49 too. Isaiah promised a savior who would say, the Lord made my mouth like a sharpened sword. Jesus, as we know, is this servant in Isaiah 49 who wields the sword of the spirit. He defeated the devil in the desert with the sword of the spirit. He defeated the devil on the cross in part by the sword of the spirit. And Paul says, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. Which tells me, if this is closed in your life, you're done. You're done. You cannot live the Christian life without the sword of the spirit. Notice it says, of the spirit. It's breathed out by God, by his spirit. That's why we affirm the inerrancy and the infallibility of the word of God. It was breathed out by his spirit. God breathed, theonoustos. The Holy Spirit makes this sword powerful and effective. You see, sin is what we do when we believe or when our hearts are not satisfied with God. No one sins out of duty. No one sins out of a sense of responsibility. We sin because we, we are deceived in believing sin's promise of happiness and fulfillment. Indeed, every time we intentionally... Now again, we have to make a dis distinction between sins of malice and sins of weakness. Sins of weakness are sins that we don't intentionally commit, but they're still sins. What Hebrews calls unintentional sins. And what are the wages of an unintentional sins? Death. All right? But then there are sins of malice. Sins or malice are what the, the law describes as high-handed sins, where you, where you premeditate that sin and you'll ask for forgiveness later. Sins of malice. And so this is what I'm talking about here. Every time we intentionally commit a sin, disobey a command of God, it's because I'm in that very moment doubtful as to God's true intentions in giving me that command. Does he really have my best interest at heart for him to give me this command? However, the sword of the spirit, the word of God changes our view of God's commandments. It helps us, it helps us see the heart of the one who gave us those commandments. If he loved us enough to nail his son to a Roman cross to secure our salvation, then he must have been guided by that same love when he gave us these commandments in the first place. And that's why the word of God is so fundamental. I can't even emphasize to you enough how important it is that you read your Bible and that you sit under the preaching of the word. It gives us a vision of God that counters sin's claims and Satan's deceptions. It's what the word of God does. So there we have it, the armor of God. It gives us the power to stand. But the fact that scripture would call us to put on the armor, notice, put it on, 
It alerts us to the fact that we don't automatically enter each day with the armor on. Our default position is to walk in the old south unarmed. In fact, this mandate to put on the armor implies that we are vulnerable to defeat. We are vulnerable to injury unless we arm ourselves in the gospel from head to toe every moment of our days. And that's why we succumb to the schemes of the evil one. That's why we give in. The issue isn't that the enemy is too strong. He's defeated. And the issue is not that you're too weak. The spirit of Christ lives in you. He has sealed you. You have resurrection, omnipotent power to live out the Christian life. The reason we don't stand when the evil one attacks us is that we don't have sufficient desire to stand. For this reason, the final instruction given by Paul, the final instruction that your pastor is giving to you, isn't to add more armor, but rather to seek to stir within us the will to appropriate the armor. And that will come through prayer. That's how Paul ends this section. Praying then is part of the process of standing. Remember, he uses that verb, to stand. In fact, prayer is given more attention than any particular piece of armor. As important as all of the pieces of armor are, he gives more attention to prayer than any other piece. And that brings us to the application of the armor in the warfare. Look with me in verse 18. He says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. So there are 155 verses in Ephesians. 31 of them are either Paul's prayers or he's talking about prayer. Prayer is not the seventh piece of armor. It is the means by which each piece is employed and applied, and put on. Now, grammatically, praying and keeping, and that right there in verse 18, connect with the verb in verse 14, to stand. You see that? In other words, prayer and alertness is to characterize the whole of our activity. So stand praying. This is how this would work out in the grammar of things. At all times in the spirit. Put on the belt of truth, praying. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, praying. Put on the shoes, the gospel shoes, praying. Take up the shield of faith, praying. Take the helmet of salvation, praying. The sword of the spirit, praying. That's how the grammar works out in this passage. And don't miss the four alls here. 
at all times in the spirit. I suppose there's hardly anyone in here that never prays. I suppose all of us pray during times of personal or family trials. But Paul is saying here that all situations in life should lead us to pray. The word all in Greek, write this down, means all. That's what it means. I got that from the Holy Spirit. All situations in life. So pray instead of worrying. Pray instead of stressing. Pray instead of panicking. Pray instead of overthinking. Pray instead of assuming. Pray instead of trying to control things. Pray instead of letting your minds wander. At all times, pray. That's God's word to Fisherville. Years ago, ministers gathered at a prayer conference in the Scottish Highlands to discuss what it meant to pray without ceasing, which is where Paul he uses that language in 1 Thessalonians 5. And after a lot of discussion, they, they asked a young girl who was, who was there serving them her thoughts on praying without ceasing. And here was her response. It was better than anything else said at the conference. As I arose this morning from bed, I, I prayed that the son of righteousness would arise with healing in his wings over me today. When I got dressed, I prayed that I might be clothed in the Lord's righteousness. As I dusted the furniture, I prayed that the Lord would wipe my heart clean through the blood of Christ. When I made your refreshments ready, I prayed that Jesus Christ would be my food and drink. Sir, I pray my way through each day, for prayer is my breath and my life. Someone described this way could never remain anxious, could never remain discouraged or despairing. Notice as well, this constancy in prayer is to be in the spirit. He already prayed that in Ephesians 3.16. He showed us what it looked like. Strengthened in your inner being by the spirit, he prayed. This is the life pleasing to God. Be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5, 18, giving thanks in all things. He says that the Spirit-filled life is a life of prayer. During this age that we are living in, an age that has already been crushed by the coming kingdom of Christ, during this age, every single one of us, every believer here is beset with wicked, wicked, weakness. I'm sorry, and wickedness. Um, we are beset with weakness. Romans 8 tells us that in verse 26. And that's why we are to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to notice the second all here. He says, with all prayer and supplication, all prayer, adoration, confession, 
thanksgiving, supplication, making intercessions for your family, for your church, for your country, for your world. I think a good starting point is the prayers that Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, where he says, I pray that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened in order to know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Or Ephesians 3, where he says, I pray that you would be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. The Apostle Paul has taught us how to pray. How about the 40 commands in Ephesians? 40 imperatives. Praying that we, by the Spirit, would be able to stand firm in our God, that his purposes would prevail no matter what is happening in our culture. And then notice the third all to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Spiritual warfare prayer is hard. Spiritual warfare praying is difficult. Here's the irony. Let me give you something that's very ironic. Only the weak can pray this way. Only the weak. It requires you to be brought to the end of yourself to pray this way. The reason we don't pray this way is we're too strong. It says of King Uzziah that he was marvelously helped by the Lord until he became strong. Only the weak can pray this way. Before we can pray like this, we must see ourselves vulnerable before the evil one. If we're not praying this way, what we're saying is, I don't really believe I'm that vulnerable. And when that's our perspective, though, when we see ourselves as weak and vulnerable, we'll be as attached to prayer as a soldier is to his walkie-talkie in the middle of a frontline battle. And then the fourth all notice, making supplication for all the saints. Perhaps the most important things on your nightstand should be your Bible and a list of your church family, a directory or something of that nature. In fact, we have a list that could be sent to you, praying through the names of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice, making supplication for all the saints. Maybe the reason our church is not as healthy as we want it to be is that we have not prayed for all the saints as we should. Question, if God answered all the prayers that you have presented to him in the last 30 days, would it impact Fisherville more or your own personal life more? It's a very haunting question. Paul gives us a, an example and a command, making supplication for all the saints. And so Paul ends this treatise on spiritual warfare with a call to, to comprehensive prayer. And Paul shows us that what we especially need to pray for with each other is to be courageous in evangelism. Notice in verse 19. He does this by way of example. 
He says, and also pray for me that words may be given to me. In opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may not declare it boldly, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Incidentally, where is he writing from? He's writing from a prison. And it was this very message that led him to be imprisoned. It was this message that led to his persecution and his present chains. And interestingly enough, notice what he prays for. Not so that he would be released. That's likely what I would have asked the church to pray for. You could almost bank on it. That's not what he asked for. He asked that given the chains that I would faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, likely at the trial. That may be what's on his mind, that he would have the boldness and the courage and the clarity to proclaim that gospel when he is brought before Caesar. And I want you to know the end of this section, the call to pray, isn't just the end of this section. It is that. It's the end of the letter. A letter that began in the heavenlies. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. A letter that began in the heavenlies and it ends on our knees. It ends on our knees. Yes, our foe is powerful. He is cunning and he is wicked and Fisherville's provision. And Jesus Christ is infinitely more powerful. You need to believe that. But prayer is how this is to be assessed. We need to be more known as a praying church than we are. I pray that for you. I've heard some of you are concerned with the future at Fisherville. I get that. And let me say this. Fisherville is as secure as the armor of God. It's as secure as the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But we have responsibility to access that armor. It requires Fisherville to be on our knees. You know, we tend to be horizontal. I'm going to speak to myself here so no one's thinking I'm pointing at them. I tend to go horizontal first with my concerns. I tend to go to other people. It is a, it is a remnant of the old self in me. Unless I'm made renewed in the attitude of myself and I put on the new self, that's what I do. I don't go vertical. I go horizontal. Paul says, no prayer, no application of the armor. With prayer, foolproof application of the armor. In fact, and I think we can infer this from the text, Paul's thoughts on prayer, and we all know this, when we pray, we, the Spirit tends to bring to our remembrance people that need prayer. All right? 
In this particular case, he's prompted to think of the one who will bear this letter, Tychicus. Notice with me in verse 21. So that you may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother. Paul wasn't the only one with beloved brothers. That is the glory of Christ's church. Can't imagine trying to go through life without brother, beloved brothers and sisters. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister. Now, he wasn't a pastor. I want you to notice that. You know what he was? He was a mailman, he delivered letters. Paul calls him a minister. I'm standing before the primary ministers of Fisherville Baptist. You didn't lose your minister. The ministers are sitting right out there. Faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. God encourages us by his saints, right? Now, what's remarkable about Tychicus is he left no writings. He wrote no books. He did no ministry feats which were preserved. And yet, there's greatness in the small things. The Philippians, the Ephesians, the Colossians, and Philemon would never have received their letters were it not for this minister of the gospel, Tychicus, who delivered these letters to them. And as I close out my time here, I can say there are many Tychicus sitting out there. It's the evidence of God's hand at Fisherville. There were Tychicuses here when I got here through the faithful ministry of Jeff McCarty. And there are many more Tychicus here now after 11 years. I can say that I'm preaching to a group of Tychicuses. And that's why there's nothing, this church has all the hope of the future, all the hope. The future of Fisherville is as bright as the promises of God. It's what my mentor, Al Jackson, has often said. I can say that. I can also say, in the providence of God, you could not arrange this. The Lord had to do it. My final prayer for you is Paul's final prayer to the church at Ephesus. Verses 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers. And you have it. You have it in Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit. Peace be to the brothers. If someone calls you and they lack peace, remind them of the armor of God and the application of the armor through prayer. Because we're weak, we need reminding. You may need to remind me at some point. 
Peace be to the brothers. And love with faith. You're going to see this word love three times here. Love with faith. From God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Fisherville, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. That's Paul's word to Ephesus. And under the authority of the word of God, that's my word and final prayer to Fisherville. Grace be to all of you with incorruptible love. Let's pray. Father, thank you that I was able to preach 11 years to a, a room full of Tychicuses, faithful ministers of the gospel. Thank you for the armor of God, which is essentially our Lord Jesus Christ by his gospel. It's foolproof against any, any enemy's scheme. And yet, Lord, in the next days, the brothers and sisters at Fisherville will, will need to be reminded, as in any transition, of the armor of God and how that armor is applied. I pray that every Tychicus here would commit themselves to that. Thank you for your mercy and grace to us. Thank you for the promise that you, through the Son of God, have promised to build the church at Fisherville. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Father, if there's any here today that would have questions about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have your sins forgiven, what it means that Jesus came to die on the cross for sinners, I pray they would be so compelled in this last song that we sing together to come to me and talk to me about those vital questions. And we pray that sinners would be converted to Jesus today through repentance and faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand and as we sing.